You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Her walk took her to the station where she said hello to Fred Smith, who doffed his railwayman's cap as if she were already a grown-up. The imminence remained imminent, receded even as she watched his train huff, huff, huff off to London. She walked back and met Nancy, grubbing for things for her nature collection, and they walked companionably together before they were overtaken by Benjamin Cole on his bicycle. He stopped and dismounted and said, Shall I escort you home, ladies? Rather in the way that Hugh might have done, and Nancy giggled. Ursula was glad that the heat of the afternoon had already made her cheeks pink because she could feel herself blushing. She grabbed some cow parsley from the hedgerow and fanned herself ineffectually with it. She had not, after all, been so wrong about the imminence. Benjamin, oh, do call me Ben, he said. Only my parents call me Benjamin these days. Benjamin walked with them as far as the Shawcross's gate, where he said, goodbye then, and climbed back on his bicycle for the short ride home. Oh, Nancy whispered, disappointed on her behalf. I thought maybe he would walk you home, just the two of you. Am I so obvious? Ursula asked, her spirits drooping. You are rather. Never mind. Nancy patted her on the arm as if she were the elder by four years rather than Ursula. And then, I'm late, I think. I don't want to miss dinner, she said. And clutching her foraged treasure, she skipped along the path towards her house, singing tra-la-la-la. Nancy was a girl who really did sing tra-la. Ursula wished she was that kind of girl. She turned to go. She supposed she was late for supper too, but then she heard the mad ringing of a bicycle bell announcing Benjamin, Ben, zooming towards her. I forgot to say, he said, we're having a party next week, Saturday afternoon. Mother said to ask you, it's Dan's birthday. She wants some girls to dilute the boys. I think that was her phrase. She thought maybe you and Millie? Nancy's a bit young, isn't she? Yes, she is, Ursula agreed quickly, but I'd love to come. So would Millie, I'm sure. Thank you. Imminence had returned to the world. Kate Atkinson is the author of Behind the Scenes at the Museum, which won the Whitbread Book of the Year Award, a collection of short stories, Not the End of the World, and the novels Human Croquet, Emotionally Weird, Case Histories, One Good Turn, When Will There Be Good News, and Started Early, Took My Dog. She was awarded an MBE in the Queen's 2011 Birthday Honors for Services to Literature. Her new novel is Life After Life. Thank you for joining me, Kate. Oh, absolute pleasure. Thank you. This is such a a wonderful book about the one thing in our lives that can neither be replenished nor replaced nor returned. Mm -hmm. It's the most important thing in our lives, which is time. Mm, I know. (laughs) If only. That is the... I think I write about time quite a lot, actually. I hadn't really thought about it, but it's... I'm 61. Time is now finite for me, so I think perhaps I'm becoming slightly more obsessed with it. And the idea, I think, of having more of it, but not just having more of it, having having the new part of it, you know, to be born again and again, to go through all that again. I always think, oh, I would be so much better at maths if I had my time over again. <laughs> and I would learn the things, the things that you know you would learn. And I think maybe that's the heart of the attraction because she, Ursula, the, the protagonist of this book, every time she's born, she does learn more. And sometimes she learns really bad things, but sometimes she re- learns really good things. And to be conscious and learn those things would be fantastic, wouldn't it? One of the things that struck me about this book was when we look at behind the scenes of the museum, that with your first novel, it was really uh, an attempt and an extremely successful one to give us a life in full. Mm. What we see here is another version of that. Mm. And the technique you use, rebirth, mm. give you the potential for showing us all the different kinds of lives that we can lead. Mm. Yes, that we're not allowed to in real life. I think that's fiction is such a playground for a writer, I think, because you can, you know, people don't need to die. People can, people live forever in fiction. They do anyway, don't they? I mean, you know, Elizabeth Bennet lives forever in Pride and Prejudice somewhere in the world. So I think uh, to, it's not reincarnation. A lot of people, a lot of people on tour in the UK too have said to me, so do you believe in reincarnation? And I had never even thought of this as reincarnation. I think of this as the same life in a way, in a kind of 
harmonious pattern. It's wave after wave of the same life, and or maybe like the the piece of grit in the oyster shell that you know becomes a pearl. That it's this, these layers, these accretions of experience that make up make up this life. Because if you have enough time, perhaps you could live your life. I think it's, I, I, her brother says something at the beginning. The book is terrible. I'm a terrible author. I've actually forgotten what I say. But there's a quote that is from her brother saying, "You know, if you had enough time, would you get it right?" And I think it's, you know, we always think, "Oh well, you know, I'll get to the end of my life and." Well, I've done it right. And I don't think we should think about life like that, actually. Even though I've written a book that seems to suggest that, I think we should just think this is the life, you know, this is the life we have. Do it right every second, not look back and think if I'd had another chance. That's a bit Oprah, but you know what I mean? Well, too, this is a book, I think, that really reflects on the quantum nature of life. Every mm. every time we make a decision, mm. we create two new worlds, one in which we made that decision mm. and one in which we did not. I have a, a story. I have a series of stories that I haven't published yet. And who knows if I ever will, but the, the protagonist is called Franklin. And he, at the beginning, he is a would-be writer and he's writing a fractal novel so that the novel bifurcates into you know narratives A and B and then narrative A bifurcates into you know, B and C and D and then... And it just goes on and on until it drives him insane and he has to throw it away. <laughs> and I think, it, although it's an insane idea to do that, I actually feel incredibly attracted to it. And I, I sometimes think to myself, will I write my fractal novel before I die? <laughs> or will I just go insane? But it's I love structure in, in fiction because you can do... I mean, you know, I could write a fractal novel and whether it drove me insane or not, probably nobody would ever want to buy it or publish it. But I have the freedom to write that crazy novel and I like that sense that you can I was going to say mess around with structure but that's just such a kind of ridiculous thing you can you you can craft different structures and, and narratives you can construct them because books to me are constructs and I think a lot of people who like to write who perhaps shouldn't write <laughs> see see writing as something that just flows out of you you know if you can do joined up writing you can write a novel it will just it's you know, everyone has a, everyone has a novel in them, and I always secretly think, you know, maybe that some people should keep it inside them and not let it out. But you, fiction writing is a construction just as much as writing a piece of music or making a sculpture, making a painting. It's an artifact that you have carefully put together, and writing just happens to look more seamless, I think, than other things. So. The joy and the and the nightmare of writing a book is making that construct and building it in such a way that it works. And I, I love that aspect of fiction writing, of, of narrative, of text, that you're actually consciously making this thing. It's not just a case of, oh, out it pours, you know, all my feelings and emotions. You are making something that is an object in the world, which, like Pride and Prejudice, may last for two, three hundred years if you're if you're lucky. Well, I th think there's a good case to be made for this being your fractal novel. <laughs> oh, a fractal novel would be so much more difficult. <laughs> but also, I, I think that uh, when you were talking about structure, this and music, th this mm -hmm. book partakes of some of the things we've seen with the latest technology. This is There's a bit mm -hmm. of Philip Glass in this mm -hmm, book. You think? <laughs> and there's a bit of uh, sample and uh -huh. resample and uh -huh. playback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I'd like you to talk about how perhaps some of the trends in technology have informed the writing of this book in terms of just the structure. I hadn't even thought of that, so I don't think I can talk about that. I hadn't... Um... It really hadn't struck me because I always go back to Tristram Shandy, which is at the heart of behind the scenes in many ways. And I remember being at university and I hadn't read it until I went to university to do um, a degree in English literature. And I remember my tutor saying, Tristram Shandy, you know, the first novel, the first anti-novel. And so in a way because that was a crazy structure, I've always thought that's what happens with a narrative. So I've never really thought of taking the influences from music at all so I'm I don't know I'm thinking about that I'm thinking too I can see sampling that's true and also I am a sampler in that I take little quotes all the time and I embed them in in all of my books and I'm always incredibly pleased when someone spots the quote that you know is there and that, that is a gift to me it's the thing that I retain in books as if I put a quote from another writer I mean, it's usually a classic or it's a poet or it's the Bible. And I've embedded it in the text in a way that it's seamless in the text. Then I think it's 
that's my gift to me because I've hidden it away. But if someone else finds it, it's always a huge pleasure. In Emotionally Weird, I'm just remembering now, in Emotionally Weird, which really is my homage to Alice in Wonderland. Um, I always say homage with rabbit ears because it's such a kind of <laughs> pretentious word. But it is, it's my, but it's my thank you to, to Lewis Carroll. And there is almost two pages of text which I have lifted, lifted, that's perhaps the wrong word, well, yes, which I've stolen from either Alice in Wonderland or the working, uh, through the looking glass. And it's almost word for word. And no one has ever spotted it or said to me, but you just took Alice in Wonderland and put it on the page. So in a way, that is my form of sampling. But it's sampling from writing rather than, than music. But I know I shall think about that, uh, the music analogy. Well, in in this novel, the there's a lot of uh, choruses and repeats, mm, and you mm, tell the story mm. in layers. Mm. And what I loved about this novel was the kind of the revel the as a novel of revelation, it mm. reveals relationships to us, in rather than necessarily having a plot that says, "Oh, this exciting thing's going to happen." What's exciting mm. for us is to see the relationships between the different layers mm. you've crafted. I think, and also because I've, I've, I have lots of plans for novels, and I speak about them as if I've already, already written them. But I would like to write a novel, and this is not a novel. I mean, this is a novel. That's the wrong word, isn't it? This is not a, um, a new idea. But I'm still keen to write a novel from different points of view. So you know, four different people. I mean, I know this has been done, but to also build up those layers. But in a way, this was a more pleasing structure to me because you're taking the different viewpoints almost from the same person. Well, you are, I suppose you are taking them from the same person, aren't you? So that Ursula is always Ursula, but you're always getting a slightly different view of things or you know, the slightly different things also happen. But the other character's character is built up continually throughout the book because we see it from different aspects and that's I think that's a really exciting thing that you can do in fiction as well that you're always being able to look at things differently you don't have to stick with this is the one view this is the one narrative that you can actually open it out to all kinds of different interpretations and those interpretations are actually within the book they're not just you know other people looking at it from the outside the the storytelling in this novel is so much fun just to experience in terms of your willingness to experiment and change things and shift. This is a a, a fascinating version of alternate history because it is alternate history, mm. but it's a personal alternate history, mm. and that's a really interesting approach. Yes, and and yet she's taking in that greater history as well and trying to make it alternate, but actually it's her own history that that's changing. I think I don't think of it as experimental, but because I think all fiction is an experiment every time you sit down to write. But I did really enjoy writing this novel. And I, you know, I've you written, what, eight, nine novels? I don't know. And you don't always enjoy writing them. In fact, a lot of the time you really, you have moments where you hate writing them. And so this to me was a pleasure from beginning to end. And I found that really interesting as a writer that I was so engaged with it. And part of that was that you, that I was... I wasn't writing an A to B narrative. I was changing things all the time. And I hold a whole novel in my head when I'm writing it, so it was very interesting to be able to feel those changes. It's almost, I think of it, I always think of this novel as waves. I don't know why, but I'm always thinking of it as waves. It's And it comes and it goes and it comes and it goes, and that's how it was to write. There was always this knowing that you're working towards something and then coming back from it and working towards it again in a different way. It was really pleasurable. I wish all novels were this, this good to write. When you describe this as a novel of waves, that mm. slots right in with quantum theory where uh, what you see is light is either a wave or a particle, depending mm. oh, on you're how you're looking at it. Oh, you're talking science to me. I know, that, I know that there's quantum physics in this book, but I don't know how. <laughs> I'm that kind of, you know, I have that kind of, is it right brain is the artistic one or is it left brain? I never know. But it's almost as if the other side of the brain doesn't exist for me. I'm so kind of non-mathematical and scientific, and yet I find it fascinating. And I, I, I was aware of the quantum physics of, of the way that time is played within this book, and I thought, I'm just not going to go there. I'm just going to ignore it as if I knew, but I'm not exploring it because I knew I would get into a tremendous mess. But, you know, you... you when you're listening to quantum physicists speak, I'm always going, really? Oh, that's amazing. Really? You know, there's like a whole multi-universe out there because in your heart you believe that. You do believe that there's all these different versions of yourself. Or oh, I do. Maybe that's insanity. 
don't you? Do you? Do you feel there are many, many millions of variations? I, I hope so. I hope so too. I find the idea of parallel lives just so fascinating. I, I do believe in another life. I am, you know, a dinosaur in a tree and the river. One of the things I really thought that was interesting in this book was that as a novelist, what you're doing is you're rewriting your own work and putting the revised work as mm. part of the novel. And that's a really interesting approach. I suppose so. I didn't, I, I'm, a, I'm a real neurotic reviser. I, I revise from day one. You know, I'll, I'll go back to the beginning of a book and, and rewrite and rewrite. So in a way, I suppose it's making manifest my own actual approach to writing because when I get to the end of a book, I don't have a... A big redraft. I just—it's all done because mm-hmm. I've redrafted and redrafted as I've gone along, and I suppose that's right. It is. She is redrafting her life, isn't she? It's right. quite an interesting. Yeah, that's that's quite a good way of looking at it. Uh, one of the things you say in here is uh, history is uh, made up of what ifs, and mm. I think that that's this vision. Your vision of history is really interesting in this book, and I'd like you to talk about how what we know in the historical timeline, what you learn in school, informed what you wrote in this book. In ter- because there's a real timeline out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the characters in this book occupy parts of that timeline or versions mm-hmm. of that timeline. So mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk about the interaction between the historical timeline, your what-ifs, and your characters' what-ifs as well. Well, apparently there is a whole new school of history, which is a what-if school. I'm sure that they have a better name for it than that. But it's it's a much more prevalent way of looking at, at history. And it is the great cliche. We all think that what if, you know, the Archduke had not been assassinated in Sarajevo? Was that one act that was outside of everyone's understanding, you know, an obscure person in an obscure place? Um, was If that hadn't happened, you know, imagine that there hadn't been a First World War. I mean, it's an extraordinary thought that that, that, that would be possible. And again, if Hitler had been killed at any point, um, you know, there's a... Ostula raises the point, if Hitler had been kidnapped as a baby, you know, would that have been different? If Hitler had been kidnapped as a baby, would Hitler have been different? Because I have a story I have not yet written, and I, I may never write it, but it's called Baby Adolf. And it's... Um, Hitler is indeed kidnapped or put into a different family, a quite different place. Uh, and I can't, I suppose the pleasure is, would be from the reader's point of view to watch baby Adolf growing up while his parents are completely unaware of what they have on their hands. And, you know, would he be a psychopath? It's the big nature-nurture um, argument, which I suppose is, is, is in this book too. So there is that what-if. And that's the big what-if. And I know it's a cliche, what would have happened if Hitler had been you know, somehow eliminated from history, would everything have gone on as it has? And I like playing with cliches, so, you know, I, I'm quite happy to take the big cliche and mess about with it because it's it's like the fractal novel, isn't it, in a way? It's just like all possibilities that I know not because anything could have happened. It, history could have gone on just the same or millions and millions and millions of lives could have been saved or somewhere in between. So there's such... It's such a fascinating way of looking at things, I think, and it's something you can do in fiction that you can't do in real life. And it, it's, it doesn't. I don't suppose I don't see Ursula's what if lives as they are. You know, the different versions of her life as actually mirroring that big, big underlying thought. Is so much as somehow being part of it. I think, and that. I'm sure perhaps quantum physics could explain that because I can't. So it's it's a continual revision, I suppose, of you know both revisional history and also of the personal history because I have always seen those two enmeshed and behind the scenes, literally, you know, it's behind the scenes of of the bigger history because they are living their lives against the background of the first and second world war and of you know, the coronation and all those big events and. It's the little, not the little, but the, the domestic life, the smaller life against that bigger history, which is the interesting thing. And I think the American novel does that better. The American novel, there's always a better sense of the individual, but somehow that more epic background, I think. And I'm not really sure how it's done, but I find it fascinating. We don't really have that in the English novel, I don't think. In a way, if you go back to the 18th century novels, there's even you know Tristram Shandy, perhaps you're seeing it there. So I think it was a lot of my 
um, my kind of fantastical background thinking over the years that came together in, in those two things, I think, because I knew I wanted to write the kind of the parallel life narrative and I also wanted to write about the Blitz and it was just a sort of happy serendipity that somehow they those two came together and matched up with each other, I suppose. As I read this novel, one of the things that really struck me was how much, at least our my perception and I think our perception of the English character of the English nation was forged in a crucible of these of the two world wars. The first, just in a sense, gave birth, as it were, to the second, where mm-hmm. where the what we know of English character now seems to have, at least in this book, really found its birth. And I'd like you to talk about this novel as an evocation of, uh, of England. I think, well, if you go back to Fox Corner, which is where Ursula is born and, and the place that she goes back to all the time because she's born there again and again, and so that we, therefore, as the reader, go back there again and again, is to me, it's this kind of ideal England. It's it's very Forsterian. It's, it's, it's a, there's a great hint of Howard's End in Fox Corner, I think, and it's it's an ideal England in many ways, in one way because it's over-idealised, I think, in another way because it's something that 1910 to me is always a potent year because it's it's just before the war and we know everything is about... We know, with hindsight, that 1910 will never come again because that is going to be ripped apart by the First World War. The, you know, the whole world is ripped apart by the First World War, but that idyllic kind of upper-middle-class Englishness is going to go in all sorts of ways. Just from practical points of view, the servants go, you know, the gardeners go, the maids go. So even that upper-middle-class and upper-class life is never going to be the same again. All those great those great gardens are going to disappear, those great houses are going to disappear because there aren't the servants to keep them up. But, I mean, that's a tiny, tiny part of it. But, um, you know, 1910 has that poignancy, I think, you know, even in, if you think about Howard's End, the end of Howard's End, when it's just the motor car drives off. I'm seeing the image of the film, in, in fact, instead of the book here. But you know that the beauty of that, that kind of Edwardian aesthetic is going to be gone forever and it's going to be kind of eaten up by brutal dissonant modernism and all of the kind of mechanical horror that the First World War brought. Um, and I've completely forgotten your question. I don't know where we started with that. <laughs> I got lost in 1910. Englishness, an evocation of Englishness. And I think, so I was drawn to that because I live in Scotland. So I often feel in, you know, in, a, in, in exile, not a horrible exile, uh, but, but, you know, the exile of not really being within my own culture. And I think I write a lot about Englishness and, and being English because I'm sort of more aware of it. And I think the English character may well have been forged during the Second World War, but I don't know if it necessarily lasted I don't think we have the same stoicism uh, that we had then you know I do think that people people had such lower expectations than they have now and I think that's a good thing you know I think we now expect everything we expect to be happy we expect to have material wealth we expect to have some kind of I think we expect to have some kind of spiritual wealth even though we don't have any religion anymore and I think we just don't make do with the lives that we have without wishing for more. And I think in time of war, when you're standing on the edge of total disaster, you know, there was a moment when England really did stand alone. We were about to be totally defeated and bankrupted that I think that had... We dealt with that incredibly well, and I wonder if we would deal with it as well now if it happened to us. I'm not sure that we would. You mentioned spirituality, and it struck me how that this is an incredibly spiritual book with none of the spirituality, <laughs> <laughs> with none of the religion. Yeah, I, 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 you know, we all. I think. Well, do we? I think we all like to think of ourselves as spiritual people. I like to think of myself as a spiritual person, but I think people tend to think if that without religion there can be no spirituality, and that's obviously not not true. And I think in this book. People are very aware of spirituality, and I wonder if that too is something that you acquire in time of war. If you're on, you know, the, the whole time you're thinking you might die, I think you come a lot nearer to the, those aspects of your of your person. I think, and I think I do. 
actually find a kind of spiritual outlet in writing. I think, I don't know if, I wonder if other artists and writers find that too, because I think, you know, we, we mourn the death of God so terribly, I think, and, you know, the final nail was put in his coffin with social media, I think. I think that's and yet you're so happy to take his place. <laughs> There's... We're looking for that thing, aren't we, I guess, you know? And and Hitler, boy, he, he, he gave something, didn't he? We looked at the thing to worship. When we should, I mean, I'm a Quaker by convincement, so although I'm a very terribly lapsed Quaker, I'm very aware that we should always be looking inside for, you know, that which is God within us, the inner light and all of those things. And I think that we kind of forget that because we look outwards. We're looking outwards for that thing. Um, you know, perhaps we should be looking inside ourselves. And I think those characters in this book are looking inside themselves. The the Blitz is beautifully described and horrifically described in this book. And there are, it's really, these are very powerful sections uh, of the novel. And there's one thing that I wanted to ask you about that I'd never heard before, a term. Uh, tell us about the mounds of London. <laughs> well, the mound I, I've, I've borrowed from a, a, a stolen, borrowed? No, because we, we all, all writers... Um, borrow all the time. There's a an out of print, very obscure book called Post D, which um, I've temporarily forgotten who wrote it. It's in the bibliography uh, for the book. That's terrible to have forgotten. But he was a a writer, Sansom. His name is Sansom. William Sansom, I think. No, no, that's another book. Just scrub all that. Um, but this Post D was written by a man who was a writer before the war, who worked as an air raid warden during the war, and after, no, during the war, I think it was published in 42, he wrote a very lightly fictionalised account of what he'd experienced. And he talks about the mound. And it was such a, it's an incredibly powerful book. And I thought, rather than inventing a new, you know, term for just what is an enormous pile of rubble, which was once a house or several houses, I would actually use this. I do give credit to it in the book. I don't just steal without referencing and so I, I I did use a lot of his experiences and other Ray Red, Ray Red Warren's experiences because when you see the photographs it is just piles of rubble it's you know we see what a house is is reduced to and people just literally digging with their bare hands trying to find survive it's the kind of thing we might see you know if there was an earthquake in China or something there's just people delicately removing bits of the building in order to find survivors and there's I I find those photographs very potent but they match up incredibly well with his experiences and his description and other air raid wardens descriptions so the mound for me when I came across it, it seemed very powerful, and I thought I'll try and recreate that powerfulness in the book. There's people just digging on the mound looking for survivors, which is what happened in every air raid. The, the way you describe the scenes of the Blitz, it's very painterly, mm-hmm. and I, it reminded me of uh, reading a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Ooh, yeah, well, that's quite a nice, uh, nice and horrible at the same time <laughs> analogy. I was trying to recreate in fiction the Blitz for me, because for I think ever since I wrote Behind the Scenes, where I touched briefly on the war, I knew I wanted to write a book about the war, and for a long time I knew I wanted to write a book about the Blitz, and it was. It was a kind of gift to me in a way. That sounds a very odd thing, but I missed the war by six years and I missed that tremendous and horrible and amazing experience. And this was the ne- the nearest I could get to it, was to recreate it fictionally as best I could. And I do think it was for me more than, in a way, more than the reader. But then maybe all books are written for oneself first before they are given out. We also get to, to see... Uh, Germany in the the pre-war Germany. Mm, And mm. this is a really interesting vision of of Germany. And I I really love the way that you immerse us in this kind of bizarre nightmare. Talk about putting your characters into this place where there's this kind of coercion and pressure. And and it's a very different kind of Germany than we've ever seen. Well, I suppose... I was very aware from reading diaries that the the at the beginning of the war the English felt very generous towards the Germans because they had holidayed in Germany they had German pen friends they knew German people there was a, a a lot more traffic in between the two countries than perhaps there is now I mean I don't think you know English people ever holiday in Germany much but so that there was a a kind of 
awareness of how civilized they were. And so I wanted to bring Ursula into Germany when it was still hanging on to its, its, its civilized nature before it descended into the war so that she could experience the same thing. And I think I got into it by making <laughs> friends with Eva Brown. And I did become very obsessed with Eva, I have to say, in a way that sounds odd. I watched so many documentaries and read all the books about her because, to me, she was Germany incarnate. She was someone who didn't want to see, someone who couldn't see, someone who did not acknowledge what was happening. And I think, you know, that that the brutalization of the German people... Well, she wasn't brutalized, but for me to work out how that happened. And I think, would how would, you know, we're so proud of ourselves that we didn't have fascism and we didn't cave into it the way that we see the Germans having done that. But actually, would we have been, you know, if someone was threatening your child or your spouse or your mother, would you then have been bold enough to have stood up to, to fascism? I think, you know, those people who did, like the Bonhoeffers of this world, were incredibly brave because it's an insidious thing and it starts off small and it gets bigger until you're trapped in the nightmare of it. And I think that's what happens to her. How do you speak out? How do you speak out? Would we have spoken out? I don't know. I think um, it was necessary for her to see it on the other side. And of course, we'd go on about the Blitz and how we were bombed and how awful it was. But Germany was more or less annihilated by our bombings. It was infinitely worse. And there was a great fear at the end of the war that Germany would never be a nation again, that it was actually wiped off the face of the earth. And I think, I think you have to, although Ursula would have said, but they started it, I think you have to honour the fact the destruction that happened in Europe was so horrendous. And I just wanted her to just go over to the other side and have a little glimpse of it in one of those lives. One of the things that, as we read this book, it's seamless, it's very fast reading, it's very mm-hmm. interesting and intense. And I really didn't think of it till I was approaching the end and not wanting it to end, mm. is that the way the book is paced, it's kind of pulses back and forth. Mm. So I'd like you to talk about creating the pace of this book. <laughs> it's, yes, I was aware of the pace of it. That's a good way of, of putting it. I it, Because it starts off slowly and there's a lot of recurrence at the beginning, almost in order to to lull us into understanding the structure of the, you know, the births and the deaths. And that happens a lot. She dies a lot at the beginning of the book, and then she really doesn't die so much. And then more of an exploration of her life and what happens to her. And then I was always aware that towards the end, very near towards the end, I knew how I wanted to to do that, to change the structure so it becomes much faster. And she kind of races through everything, revising everything, and... I always knew that in my mind, this is not a book with an ending. For me, endings are glorious. I love endings. I love ending a book anyway, because then it's over, obviously. But I also love that kind of symphonic crash of endings and novels. You know, it's ending and it's ending. It's another ending and it's ending. And oh, finally, okay, I will stop. It has ended. In this book, I really wanted to recreate the feeling that it never ends. That somewhere in the background, this novel goes on forever, because I don't actually you know give her this finality and um and it was it was a trick to do that and I don't think that everybody necessarily gets it because I do get questions and I'm not giving spoilers here but people do ask me questions about the end and go well what did that mean and for me it just means it's it's that seamlessness is forever she's forever forever somewhere in this world Ursula Todd is being born on February the 11th 1910 in a snowstorm this is indeed a novel of echoes and reverberations and overlaps. And one of the things that I really liked as a reader, one of the great, great pleasures of this book, and it's very unusual pleasure, is to uh, make these uh, cross uh, cuts between this person we've seen here before, then we see them from a different position mm-hmm. in a different mm-hmm. perspective. Mm-hmm. And that must have been really fun to write. Yes, it is fun to write that. <laughs> what can I say? That's all I can say. Yes, it's fun to write. <laughs> there was lots of aspects of that in the book that, that were fun to write because you, I think especially as I like minor characters, I give great, um, you know, a, a nod in the direction of all minor characters. And I always like to give them as much presence on the page 
a very small presence in the page, but a big character. And in a way, a lot of the characters you see from different angles are actually if you'd just seen them in one narrative, would actually occupy a very small amount of space. So it was a great pleasure to then kind of bring a minor character back. And, and especially at the end, when there's a big revision goes on and we go back to the beginning, it was such a joy to bring back the characters that we'd left behind, you know, the cook and the maid and all of these people were suddenly with them again. And that was an incredible pleasure as a writer to think, no, no, I didn't just get rid of them. Here they are again. As a writer, one of the things I really liked about this book is you, it's it's very funny in a way, but it, the the humor is very low key and very mordant. A lot of it has to do at, at the beginning with, okay, how's she going to kill her next? Yes, and I did. I more or less ran out of ways to kill her. I remember sitting there thinking, okay, so I've drowned her. She's had flu. She's done this and that. How else can you die? <laughs> So maybe that's why she doesn't die so much later on in the book. I just ran out of ways. The Blitz gave lots of opportunities. Well, I, I have to say the the one involving there's a urban legend uh, uh, about involving an an, uh, an often used domestic animal that was magnificent. <laughs> Thank you. We say no more. <laughs> You have a lot of fun with dogs in this book, too. Do you I, have dogs? No, I don't have a dog, and I would love a dog, but I have a very old cat who would just be so disgusted if I brought a dog into the house that I wouldn't do it to him. But it's a long time since I've had a dog, but I love dogs. I'm the, I'm the woman in the street who, you know, passes someone with a dog, and I dropped my knees on the pavement, and I'm like, oh, hello, hello. And the person is looking down at me like, oh, my God, she's insane. She's going to kidnap my dog. But I think these are, you know, these are my dogs. Um, I have dogs in... Every single book I've written, there are dogs because, to me, you know, a dog, a dog is, everyone has dogs. Why shouldn't dogs be in books? You know, it's, it's, I've put far fewer cats in, I must admit, but I like, I love to give personalities to dogs in books. I really do. It's, uh, I, I'm working on a story that's, in, you know, as a talking dog in it, which I think is my ultimate goal is to have the talking dog in it. We really love the characters in this book, and there are so many characters. As you mm. you you alluded to it, it has a big cast of mm. very very memorable characters, mm. not just Ursula. I really loved Sylvie, and you do some really interesting things. You mm. give her such so many great arcs, and because of the way that you've written the book, your characters can have more than one arc, and they cross mm. one another. So mm. I'd like you to talk about it, that. It's Sylvie particularly changes enormously in the book because we see her at different stages and, and, and from different viewpoints in a way that that was very natural to me. I wasn't thinking about how does Sylvie change. It seemed a, a very natural progression and yet there's huge gaps there. So the Sylvie is a, is a character who brings more questions with her than she answers because, you know, it's like, who was she with? What was she doing? Why did she become like that? There's all that I part of me wants to answer and part of me thinks, no, that remains because... You know, with people, you suddenly look at them and you think, why did you do that? Or why did you change? And I think Sylvie particularly, because rather than use the trope I did in behind the scenes with with Ruby, who starts life as an embryo, I exist from the very first cell. I didn't do that with Ursula. Ursula only really comes to consciousness when she's about four or five, when her, her own inner monologue takes over, in a way. So Sylvie is um, our way through at the beginning of the book. So I've seen everything through Sylvie's eyes and I felt a real loss when I stopped seeing everything through Sylvie's eyes. And I think, in a way, that's in the book as well. We lose Sylvie. What happens to Sylvie? We don't know because we're no longer in Sylvie's head. So it's quite interesting to to change um, to, to change the mind that I was in because normally I'm, you know, set from the beginning about whose, view I, whose viewpoint I'm taking. This book uh, gives us uh, visions of of two different wars, mm. and the fallout from those two different wars is, is is different as well. So I'd like you to talk about creating the fallout from World War One and the fallout from World War Two, both on a character level and on a society level. Well, I think with the First World War, they, you know, the First World War was a war of two fronts. There was the home front and there were the trenches. And there the two shall meet, really. I think people on the home front were really... A lot of people on the home front were very ignorant of what was going on. Of course, a lot of people also knew what was going on and how awful it was. But 
here Hugh goes to fight in the First World War, the father, Ursula's father, and comes back and says, that's it, I'm not talking about that, I don't want to think about that, I don't want to remember it, and I think, and that's it, from Hugh's point of view, and I think that happened to so many men who did survive, when they came back, they didn't talk about it because they didn't have the language to talk about the horror they'd experienced. Nobody wanted to hear about the horror they'd experienced. They didn't want to subject their families to knowing about that horror. So there is this this silence at the end there. And what we see in the book is just these sort of remnants of people, all the cripples on the street and the people who go mad and kill their families and themselves and and the horror that's not spoken of. And Izzy, the aunt, as his aunt, is a... I think she's an ambulance driver during the First World War and obviously saw many horrors, but they're not there in the book. So there's this sort of suppression. But we, we, as soon as that period is over, when Hugh comes back from the front, we go into that brutal modernist age. Suddenly it's the 20s and there's flappers and people are cutting their hair and playing jazz and it's all very different. And it's as if there's this forgotten secret that people are carrying with them. But... And I think that's how it was, that you know, there was no talking about it, except for those ghostly shadows of, you know, the psychiatrist deals with men who who have huge mental problems. And it was all so suppressed that it must have been very odd for those men coming back. Whereas with the Second World War, there's a great deal more understanding because, you know, media had, had grown so that, you know, there was a, a great deal more documentation of, of what war was like. And in Britain, it was a total war. Everyone was involved. It was, you know, the first war where civilians were also at war, and that had an enormous effect on character and on attitude and changed people, changes Ursula a great deal, changes Ursula enormously. But, you know, she's one of those women who who had a job, who worked in the war, who whose attitude, I think, changed to everything, I think, but particularly to their own self, their own sense of self. So I tried not to make all of those things apparent, but to somehow just knit them in under the surface, I think. That's one of the great pleasures of this book, I think, is how much of the book is not in the book. <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> I mean, there's there's so many things yeah. that you don't tell us that you uh-huh. let us fill in. Yeah. And I, just for example, there's a, a couple little incidents with some missing kids mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. uh, some just little things in the book that the reader afterwards is left to think about mm-hmm. and explore. You don't explain no. everything in this book. I don't. And and. Because I am a bit of an explainer. It was good. I was constantly holding back. I was thinking, do I say what happened to those missing kids? You know, because that would be very satisfying, wouldn't it? But no, kind of withdrawing that satisfaction. But in a way, it involves the reader in the text because, you know, you are then thinking, so where are, where, is, where is that child? What happened to Sylvie? All of those things seemed more... Um, satisfyingly subtle, I think. Because, you know, exposition can get very boring in fiction, I think. It strikes me you could actually probably write a sequel to this book about all the stuff you alluded to. I know. No, no, and that has actually struck me. There is a companion book to this, I hope, very much, um, that I've only thought about rather than written, which is 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 Teddy's story, her brother's story, seeing things from other angles. Because although I was fascinated by the Blitz, I'm also fascinated by the bombing campaign. And he is a, a bombing pilot. He flies a, a Halifax. And I, um, and I have been reading a lot about Halifax. I think I could single-handedly return from a, a bombing raid on Bremen flying a Halifax. <laughs> I feel I know so much. But in a way, I started that off thinking that there were holes that I could satisfyingly fill. And already in thinking about it, I realized that I've created more holes within this book. So uh, I like that, the book that's not there. <laughs> it, one of the things that's nice in this book is it's clear you did a, a bunch of research. You really read, but it never feels like you're telling us the results of your research. I'd like mm. you to just talk about how you approach it as a writer. Is it, is it something you marinate yourself in beforehand and then start the writing? Yes, pretty much. I think that's a, a, a good explanation. I did a kind of immersion year where I, I, I read all the historical accounts. I read all the personal accounts, the personal diaries. I watched lots and lots and lots of documentaries. And I also looked for the fiction of the time to see, you know, what people, you know, the movies that people were watching, the the, the books they were reading, um, 
the radio that they were listening to. I'd listened to nothing but World War II music. And for When I was writing the 20s, I listened to music from the 20s. When I was writing the 30s, I listened to music from the 30s. In the war, it was all wartime music. And really tried to capture the what it felt like, because that's, I suppose, what all novelists are always trying to do. No matter what genre they're writing, they're trying to capture how it feels, I think. And so after that year, I just put all that aside and didn't look at it again until maybe later I wanted to check facts or something like that. But I wrote without anything to hand, really, so that I could, you know, that was why it was important to absorb the atmosphere, because it was then the atmosphere I was trying to recreate rather than the facts, I think, because, you know, you are writing fiction. That's one of the things I think that's interesting, too, about this book. You alluded to uh, genre. In a sense, you could say, well, this is a piece of speculative fiction because mm-hmm. it involves this premise of the, the woman mm-hmm. being born again mm-hmm. and again. But we never think about that when we're mm-hmm. reading it. Yeah. We just experience it as a novel. It's a way for you to use the toolkit of alternate history and science fiction and some of those mm-hmm. other things mm-hmm. in a way that to just explore character, explore history, mm-hmm. explore your uh, plot and your uh, and the structure um, away from the genre. I think it's very interesting that you managed to pry the tools so far away from it <laughs> that they don't. You don't yeah. think about that. No, it, it's a book that kind of refuses genre. It's like you know, I'm not going to be historical fiction. I'm not going to be science fiction. I'm not going to be a mystery. Um, certainly not going to be a romance. But I'm not going to be a war book either. I don't think it's not. It's just. It's, I, I myself am always refusing genre. I'm thinking, I'm not a crime writer. I'm not a this writer. I'm not a that. I'm just, a book is a book, you know. To paraphrase Gertrude Stein of the roses, roses, roses. A book is a book is a book. It's just a book. Just accept it as a text, you know. And I, um, of course, people get shirty with you when you say that. <laughs> but I think with this book, I sort of succeeded because it's quite hard to categorize. If anything, it just has the the feel of a of a big novel along the lines of Dickens or, uh. or you know, any of the other <laughs> Oh, she says, you know, this, it's not a lovely thing to hear. It's, I think it's my best novel. I, I don't expect to write a better novel, which is an incredibly disappoint, um, depressing point to be sitting here and saying. <laughs> uh, there's a, a, a great uh, Harlan Ellison story about a guy who goes to all this trouble to raise a demon to find out when the best point of his life is going mm-hmm, to be. Mm-hmm. And the demon says, it was your 12th birthday party. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, well, one must strive, as, as you know, the characters in this book would say. <laughs> I, I think that you have many more stories in, in your future. And, and one of the things that interested me, too, is just your sense of what comprises this story. We have little stories within this story. I mean, this is a story that's built, in a sense, on a... It, you could... Describe this as a collection of short stories. I, I, well, yes, and I often think that's the perfect novel to write. Maybe not to read, but to write. But I didn't. No, I didn't see it like that. Anyway, this book I'm talking about that I haven't written, which is the companion piece, is more like that. Much more obviously, clearly like that. A composite, I think. Whereas this, to me, was you know, I go back to that wave. It's more harmonious. It's not so much a collection of different stories. It's well, it's the same story, isn't it? It's the same story resonating i suppose and, and it well it's uh phil specter uh lo- <laughs> lots of reverb and echo yes, yeah okay i'll take that <laughs> uh having written this kind of book and written books like uh started early to, mm. took my dog which is just a, a wonderfully fun and mm. i think very different kind of book uh, Talk a little bit about where you see yourself going next and how much your each work is informed by the last. I mean, if this was a book of iterations, which I think is how I would describe it, uh, how do you see your books as iterations of one another? Ooh, well, I see myself going more in, uh, in, in sets. So I think the first three novels are all about... Um, I think they're all first person. It's terrible, I can't remember. They're all really about a girl at different stages in her life, I think. And they're all very much um, influenced by Alice in Wonderland and fairy tales and childhood reading. They're about childhood and coming to to understanding. And then I think there's the four Jackson Broder novels, which for me build on each other because although I think they're entirely standalone books, to me they get 
deeper and bigger uh, in in my mind they get more perhaps more how I would want them to be till you know till I've reached the point where I really don't have that much more to say and in, in each one I try to do something different which may not only be apparent to me but to me I'm doing something different and then I I finished with that set and I've moved on to a different thing and so I, I think at the moment I'm still in the war zone but you know I can see future books you know backing up as it were there's a queue there and I try and focus on the next one in the queue which I think is again is the war I think now I'm in um in a war zone and that's really I th- I imagine I imagine that's the next couple of books, but I don't know. I mean, I, I am prone to making great pronouncements about what I'm writing next and then not writing it. But um, I think I just... I'm not, it's wrong to say I get bored with what I'm doing. I just feel I've done something as far as I can for the time being, and I haven't quite reached that stage with with these books, I think. Perhaps with Fox Corner. Return to Fox Corner. I think that's what the next book should be called, although it's not. <laughs> So we won't be seeing uh, Jackson Brody next? Not for a while. I do get asked that everywhere. Um, but I've, I've just, um, I've kind of, I'm written out on, on Jackson at the moment. But I will bring him back because he's so enormously popular and because he gives me a mouthpiece to talk about being Yorkshire and grumpy and all of those things. But I don't have that structure in me. It's an incredibly complicated thing for me to write. I'm not a natural plotter. Structure I like, but plot I find quite difficult. And, you know, Crime novels, if if that's what they are, are just all about plot, and I find it quite um, quite difficult to do that. And it was a release in this book just to write something that moved forward all the time. So I want to write another book, I think, that moves forward. Well, it struck me too that the way you approach this book was similar to the way you approached your crime novels, and mm. it's they're kind of like they lay out a layer of this and a layer of mm. that, and mm. then. As readers, we make the connections, and that's the pleasure. I think, you know, the Jackson Brody books are much more entangled. You know, they're kind mm-hmm. of woven together, whereas this is much more free-flowing, I think, for me, for, to write anyway. I don't know about reading, but it had less of that kind of knotty going back and putting things in and, you know, making things work. It just, it really was a book that wrote, it, you know, sentence after sentence. Uh, given that entangled is a word that's often used in quantum physics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you will bring me back to science. <laughs> uh, I, well, quantum physics is, is a, an intuitive science, and I, okay. I, I suggest that you have you have a, a real knack for that. <laughs> so uh, go back and get your, your studies in, in yeah. quantum physics. <laughs> Perhaps that should be my next life. <laughs> I've been speaking with Kate Atkinson. Her new novel is Life After Life. Thank you for joining me, Kate. Oh, thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>